Our scripture this morning comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 1. You can find it in your own Bibles. You can also follow along on the screen behind me as we continue to talk about the non-negotiables in our faith. And uh, this is from the very beginning of the Gospel of John, as he puts right up front what he thinks is most important for us to know about the one whom we worship. I'm going to pick it up in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made, and without him, nothing was made that has been made. And it was life, and the life was the light of all humanity. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. It's all who did receive him. To all who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh, made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, whether because of my words or in spite of them, may your word be spoken this morning. Whether we come with willing ears or stubborn ones, help us to hear. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. I like old things. Always have. Always had a, a weakness for them. I like old books. I'm particularly grateful to Walter Meggs here in the church. He likes to hand some off to me, and they're, they're lining uh, one of the shelves in my office. But uh, I love, love old books. I live in an old house. And like a lot of uh, old houses, and a lot of the old houses I've lived in, uh, my house doesn't have that many closets. So I keep my clothes in an old wardrobe. Bought it for 90 bucks off a guy who got it from his elderly aunt in Fort Walton back when I lived near there. If you look in that wardrobe in the back corner, you'll find an old box. And in that box, you'll find a pair of old cufflinks that belong to my grandfather. They're emblazoned with the, uh, the they're made of brass and they're emblazoned with uh, this insignia of the Texas State Bar Association, which doesn't have any relationship to my life. Never lived in Texas, never been a member of the Bar Association there or anywhere else. But I hang on to him, the memory of him. I'm the only one of the grandkids who remembers him. Uh, he died when I was I was pretty young. Right alongside that, you'll find another set of cufflinks uh, that come from the 1800s. They're designed to look like they uh, they have a Roman imperial seal on them. They're designed to look as if they date back to 2,000 years ago, to the Roman Empire, as if they have a, a Roman wax seal in them. I'm pretty sure that the Romans didn't wear cufflinks, but Jennifer found these one time and gave them to me as a gift, and I hang on to them, even though I don't wear uh, cufflink shirts hardly ever. I just, I love that connection with something old, something something from the past. And it's not that I'm scared of new things. I mean, y'all know, I, I preach my sermons from a from an iPad, and then I drop my, my, my Apple Pencil off the side of it. I love following with uh, technology, and I love new ideas, and I love uh, new things as well. There's a part of my brain that sits right alongside the part that loves old things, and, uh, and, and it loves new things too. For us, I, like I get bored with politics and with elections, but I'm fascinated by policies. 
by the new ideas people put forward to solve old problems. I think they're interesting. I think they're often surprising. But old things are reliable. They're trustworthy. Even when they break, which they do a lot, they break in reliable and trustworthy ways. Somebody's seen it happen before. They know how to fix it. They stood the test of time. Old things don't become old unless they stand up to the test of time. Even when I was a teenager, old-fashioned was just not an insult when it came out of my mouth. I tended to think that old books and old people had wisdom, and if I didn't understand it, that was probably more my fault than theirs. Very so often, I wonder what sorts of things am I doing now that will have the privilege of becoming old things? What sorts of words can I say to someone that will still matter 30, 40 years from now? What's going to stand the test of time? And what is it about me that's going to prove trustworthy? Background on the Gospel of John that we just heard from uh, is, well, first of all, that it's an old thing. These words have stuck around for 2,000 years, two millennia, and long after the youngest person in here has faded from memory, these words are going to remain. You can count on hearing them every year at Dolphin Way. We usually say these words, we usually read them out loud around about Christmas. Uh, We never put them on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day. That's the main event. That's the big day. And so we tell a story on those days. We preach from Luke chapter 1 and chapter 2. We tell that story because stories are a little bit easier to wrap our head around. You know, like Linus can tell a story. Charlie Brown can understand a story. We usually take this verse and read it together maybe a week before Christmas Eve. Uh, uh, something to get us warmed up. We, when we do it, we usually do it while doing something like lighting a candle. Something that can make this very abstract verse feel a little bit more concrete. For instance, when we say the light shines in the darkness and the darkness is not overcome. We like having a visual aid for that. Depending on how you measure things, the story of Jesus was actually already an old story by the time John wrote down this version. And when I say John, I I want to be real clear. Uh, We call this the Gospel of John. Uh, We call the author of this John. The author of the Gospel never calls himself that. He calls himself the apostle or the disciple whom Jesus loved. If you get to the end of the Gospel, you'll begin to get the sense that this apostle is really quite old. Jesus' last words in the Gospel of John are about this disciple, this disciple we call John. One guy says, well, what's going to happen to him? And Jesus says, well, what's it to you if he outlives everybody else? Those are Jesus' last words in the Gospel of John. And then John adds this commentary on that. He says, this is the one who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that this disciple's testimony is true says, wrote them down, past tense. All Bible scholars agree that the Gospel of John was certainly the last of the four Gospels to be written, and a strong consensus holds that it was written by a disciple, John, who had remained with his church for an unusually long time, as opposed to the other apostles who tended to kind of move and and be on mission and uh, evangelism in different places. John had been with his community for a very long time. And for years, this disciple had told stories. He had been the firsthand witness to everything Jesus had done. 
He had been the one who saw the healings and the feeding of the 5,000. He was the one, we are told, who stayed at the foot of the cross and saw what happened and then who ran to the tomb and was the one to see it empty. And he's the one who's been telling the people there in this church about how it all went down. He's been telling the first generation of Christians what he saw. And now the time is coming for this disciple probably to die. He can see it coming and he wants to leave the church something more reliable, something more trustworthy than just the memory of what he said. He takes the the stories that he has been telling them, puts them on paper so that the fourth generation and the 20th generation of Christians can trust that they are hearing what the first generation heard. And as he writes it all down, the disciple doesn't just tell stories. He comments on them. Says, and this is what that means. He does this a lot more than any of the other gospel writers. In fact, uh, we see this at the very beginning. What, whereas Ma- Matthew and Mark and Luke, they open their gospels by telling a story of baptism or of birth. Instead, John reaches back way further than Jesus' baptism or his birth. He wants to make sure the church understands that Jesus has been at work, not since the moment he was born, not since the moment Gabriel announced it to Mary, but that Jesus has been at work since the very beginning, that his work is older than anyone's lifetime, so old that it's actually beyond time entirely. (laughs) This opening to the Gospel of John, it is mysterious. It's not like the others. It is beyond our understanding precisely because it is eternal. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. In him was life, the light of all mankind. You know, ever since Albert Einstein, we have said that time itself is light. It is the movement of light. It is measured by the speed of light. Time is the passing of light. We learn and 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 and, and now we say that the, the universe began with a flash of light, that before there was light, there wasn't anything else. That that light was the beginning of time and everything. And so how incredible is it that this apostle John establishes the eternal nature of Christ by insisting that life and aging and time and everything that exists were inside of Christ. In him was life, and the life was the light of all men. I'm not saying that John understood Einstein's theory of special relativity, but I do think we have to fight against the temptation when we talk about Jesus of telling his story in the same way we tell every other one. Uh, it was the, the historian Arthur Timby, Toynbee who first said that history is just one dadgum thing after another or something like that. I think that's pretty close to the quote. When we tell the story of Jesus like that, he did this and then he did that and then this happened and that was sad and then this happened and it was great. We begin to see our lives in the same way. Things that happen one after another. We grow, we fall, we learn or we don't. And we miss out on the mind-blowing fullness of the promise of eternity 
of an eternal life that is not waiting out there in the future for us to maybe get to, but it is a thing, a reality that is here among us right now. We are in eternal life right now. We are in eternity if we draw near to Christ. When Jesus was in Nazareth or in Galilee or in Jerusalem or in the garden, Jesus was never waiting on eternal life. He was eternal life and he is eternal life. And when people touched him, they heard him or they saw him, they were glimpsing eternal life. This is what it looks like. It's kind of hard to wrap our minds around. Maybe it'll help if we go back to a wardrobe, specifically one that uh, C.S. Lewis made famous. If you've, uh, I don't want to spoil the first few chapters of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. C.S. Lewis is great classic. If you haven't read the book or seen the several terrible movies that have been made of it, uh, I, I'm excited. The word is Greta Gerwig uh, is going to make a, a, a Barbie fame. That's her next project is, uh, is Chronicles of Narnia. And I'm hopeful this time they get it right. They failed so many times. I hate to spoil the first bit of it if you haven't seen it or watched it or read it. But in the first few chapters, if you've read it, you know the, the hero Lucy is trying to hide from her siblings. She goes into a wardrobe. She's going to hide at the very back of it, but the more she presses into it, the more she realizes she can't find the back of it. It just seems to go deeper and deeper and expand into a world that is larger and larger until eventually she finds herself in this entirely different realm, a realm called Narnia, where that is not only vaster than she ever imagined, but where time seems to work a little differently. Eventually, Lucy brings her siblings there and they become full grown-ups, kings and queens. They live an entire lifetime there before they return back to the real world. And they find themselves as children again, and they realize they've only been gone for a minute of what we call ordinary time. It's probably no coincidence that one of Lewis's great heroes in the faith was an old, old writer and church father named Athanasius. C.S. Lewis even uh, wrote a foreword to one of his old sermons. It was Athanasius who said, Let no one who renounces the world Think that he has given up some great thing. The whole earth, when set against heaven's infinity, is scant and poor. Renounce the whole world and don't think you've given up a thing. Because compared with God's infinity, all the earth is scant and poor. There's a whole world, a whole life, whole existence and reality far larger, vaster than the world enables us to imagine. Compared with it, the world itself is scant and poor. And that's what makes the second stanza of the Apostles' Creed non-negotiable for us. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son. See, if we only think of Jesus as a great example, as a, as a moral teacher, as a role model. And I've got bad news. Some of the worst news, in fact, there's no use in having Jesus as your role model because you're never going to match up. You're never going to live up. He is not doing a thing that you can do, at least not in your own power. You can't become Jesus simply by admiring him or studying him. You can't do it by trying as hard as you would like to, trying as hard as you can. You might as well try and hike your way to Nardia. You have to be born again. You have to be willing to enter into a new world. 
You have to live within the eternal life of Christ and let it live in you. Another way of thinking about it or putting it is that eternity is not a thing you can schedule or plan or accomplish. The only response it calls from us is worship. When we enter into worship, we allow ourselves simply to draw near to Christ, to praise Jesus Christ, to recognize his glory and his goodness, the glory of the Father, full of grace and truth, as John says. We step into God's time. I can't promise you that the worship you offer Jesus Christ will make a difference in a way that matches your time and your schedule. I can't tell you that the time you spend reading the scriptures one morning is going to solve your 1 p.m. problem later that afternoon. Sometimes it happens that way. Those are good days. But instead of counting on that, you should count on the fact that every time you draw near to Jesus, in that moment, you are entering into God's time and you are touching eternity. You're touching the word that will last forever. You're entering into the life of Christ that will outlast everything else. The one o'clock problem might show up anyway, but you'll know that it's temporary. And you'll remember what endures. And eventually you'll see that even the worst things are temporary, scant and poor, compared with the vastness and the glory of God. You can live within it. And that's what will change you. A solution you come up with apart from Christ will turn out to be temporary too. It might be new. It might be interesting. But it won't be eternal. It might work out for you temporarily. Whether you gain the world or you lose it, don't think you've gained or lost anything that matters. The whole earth, compared with God's infinity, is scant and poor. But when you know the eternal God who's in Christ Jesus, when you draw near to his humanity and accept his infinity, then something remarkable happens. You begin to shine like a light in the darkness that the darkness cannot overcome. Now, I know that's what John said about Jesus in what we just read. He said, Jesus is the light who shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. But it's true for you too. That's one of the things that Athanasius, C.S. Lewis's great hero said. He said, in Christ, God became us so that we could become divine, so that we could begin to see our lives on an eternal time scale. Or as John will go on to say it later in chapter one of the gospel, to all who believe in him, he will give the power to become children of God. Jesus is the Son of God, the only begotten Son of God. And in him we receive the power to also become the sons and daughters of God. Not because we earned it, not because we picked the right role model or we lived up to it. No, children of God are made by the power that only God can give. They are the ones to whom the things of this world just stopped making sense at some point. They're the ones who learn to live a little bit out of step with their own time or any time because they were willing to surrender to God's time. 
If you've only ever known Jesus as someone to be studied or admired, my prayer for you today is that you will know him as somebody who should be worshipped and trusted because that's what makes the difference. I pray you'll let go of whatever it is that's keeping you from spending your time on his time. And if you will, then today can be the beginning. Beginning of a new creation, of light and of life, and today can be the beginning of how people come to trust that there's a light shining in you. Not because you're an old soul, but because God's given you an eternal one. You don't have to wait for it. It's in him. The light was in him. The light is in him. And if we are in him, the darkness will not overcome us either. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.